0: Well, open up your personal copy of the Word of God to Paul's letter to the church of the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, fourth chapter of this, this great letter. We are returning now. It's been almost a month since we've been in this letter, various reasons. So it's good to get back again. You know, last week was our Thanksgiving, annual Thanksgiving service, a testimony service, and boy, I was super encouraged uh, by that uh, that service. I'm sure that you were as well. The number of of people who who came spontaneously to give testimony of the grace of God and their lives and, and the way that they have been ministered to by one another here in the body really speaks of the of the underlying truth that we have been driving at here in the fourth chapter of, of Paul's letter to the church of the Ephesians, the unity of, the, of the, um, the body of Christ here. And so it just really excited me. I've, I've been thinking all week long about just about the testimonies and, and who came, the young, the old, and, and how many people said, you know, I didn't intend to get up and say anything, but I felt compelled to do so. And, and that was just really, really, really encouraging uh, to me. Beloved, that was fellowship. That was true fellowship last week, and that was the ministry of the pew. That was the ministry of the pew on display. So let's pick it up here. I'm going to read again just to get us back into the context. I'm going to read the fourth chapter, just verse, the first 16 verses, where Paul is, is dealing here with unity and the importance of church unity, which is the a natural and expected outcome of the great doctrines of grace that Paul has been uh, elaborating in the first three chapters. So it begins there in verse 1, therefore, right? So in light of all that has gone before, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all, and in all but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift therefore it says when he ascended on high he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men now this expression he ascended what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth he who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. From whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. This tremendous section, this rich section of a rich letter, is all about unity. It's all about unity. And as we were thinking about how to sort of package this and and explain it uh, to you going forward, it seemed that a question-and-answer format might be the right approach. Might be the right approach. And the reason we wanted to do that is because there's a lot of of issues and questions that surround unity, Christian unity. And we've entitled this this mini-series, I guess you'd say, as Christian Unity, an Elusive Jewel. There are many, many questions and 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 topics that are that are part of a discussion of unity that just didn't easily fit themselves into the various verses of the text. And so we decided to approach it more on a question and answer basis. It it allows us to be wider in our in our teaching and wider in our application. So that's what we've been doing, and we're back at it again today. We've got one question actually. Well, it depends on time. We might get to two. We have uh, one for sure, maybe two questions that we will raise and answer. But again, it's been a month or so. So, to get us back into our thinking, I'm not not going to answer them again, but I'll just raise them and just to remind you of where we've been. So, we've looked at a question. First question is what is unity? What is unity? And we address that question. And if, if these are fuzzy to you, maybe you're here new with us for the first time, maybe you missed the beginning sermon in the series here, you can always go to the website and you can pick these up. So what is unity? Next question, what is the source of unity? We looked at why is unity so important? Another, is unity primarily a local issue? Again, can Christians strongly disagree and still have unity? Another, are there limits on unity? Another one, how do we cultivate unity in our local church? And you'll remember that with that question, we said we were going to now turn from uh, uh, an emphasis or discussion of Christian unity in its totality, that is the universal body of Christ, and we were going to focus actually where the New Testament gives the majority of its focus, and that is the unity as expressed in a local fellowship, the the localization of the body of Christ. And so going forward, unless we call it out otherwise, when we talk about unity, now going forward, from that question forward, we're talking about the unity of a local church just like Foothill. We're talking about unity at Foothill. And that brings us to the question that's before us this morning. The question is simply this What role does theology play in unity? That's the question we want to address this morning. What role does theology play in unity? The answer to that is a, a simple one in one sense, and it's this that unity is maintained through common conviction. Unity is maintained through common convictions. Now, Paul is is working on a discussion of unity here, and he's building his case, building his argument. And as he furthers his argument, beginning here in verse 4, and and that's what's before the house this morning, is verses 4 through 6, in particular, this chapter. As he's furthering his argument for unity within the local church, he, he provides a, an abbreviated doctrinal statement or confessional expression of sorts. And you see it here, one body, one spirit. And literally, you see the verb there in verse 4. It's implied. It's not there in the original Greek text. It literally reads, um, one body, one spirit. That's how Paul begins in verse 4. Right, uh, Verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, one body, one spirit. Just as you were called in one hope, you're calling one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, and so forth. Okay, so it's a it's a very short, staccato, abbreviated kind of, of confessional statement. It's not exhaustive, to be sure. There are many, many uh, vital doctrines that Paul does not include in this short statement here in verses four through six. But what he does do, and it's it's very instructive, very significant is that in each of the verses, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, he calls out one of the members of the Godhead. The Spirit, right? Verse 4. The Lord, verse 5. God the Father, verse 6. So, Spirit, Son, and Father. That's that's not a typical way. We normally speak of Father, Son, and Spirit. But flowing out of the context of the work of the Spirit and the bond of peace, Paul just reverses the order. Spirit, Son, Father. Okay, So this short doctrinal confession is arranged around the members of the Godhead and it, um, their particular contribution, not exhaustively, but their particular contribution to the topic of unity. That's what verses 4 to 6 is all about. Seven times in these verses, Paul emphasizes unity by the use of the word one. All right, you see it. One spirit, one body, one spirit. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Okay, so he's emphasizing the one, 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 and that is a whole uh, issue of unity, right? The Father, Son, and Spirit contribute to the unity of the church. So let's kind of unpack this a little bit and see how Paul builds his argument. It begins here in verse 4 with the work of the Spirit, and and it's, I think, could be reduced to something like this kind of a statement. We share the same Spirit, and thus the same destiny. That's Paul's point in verse 4. We share the same Spirit, thus we share the same destiny. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you are called in one hope of your calling. Now, back in chapter 2, verses 16 to, to 21, Paul describes how the church has been made one body, right? One body in which the spirit dwells. You see it there, verse 16. He might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, having, um, by it having put to death the, the enmity. And so it is one body has been, has been brought together and the spirit dwells within the body. And it is through the spirit that we have unhindered access to the father. You see it. Verse 18, chapter 2, right? Through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Beyond that, in chapter 1, in verses 13 and 14, Paul introduces the indwelling spirit there where he says, In him that is a Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge. Of our inheritance. So, the work of the Spirit as He indwells us is a pledge or an, ins- an assurance, if you will, that God will complete the work of redemption that He has begun in Christ. Paul, here now in chapter 4, calls that assurance our common or our one hope. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling, that is our assurance provided by the Spirit. What is that assurance? Well, we could talk about things like this. The the Spirit and His indwelling presence within us is our assurance that we will inherit the kingdom of God. That we will inherit the kingdom of God. You see over in uh, in chapter 1, verse 4, where he says, uh, God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Chose us for what? Chose us that we would be holy and blameless before him. Contrast that with chapter 5 and verse 5, where Paul writes, This you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. In other words, it is the... It is the indwelling spirit who is our assurance that, the, the, that our election, our predestination, unto a holy and blamelessness, which is a necessary entrance requirement into the kingdom of God, will be fulfilled in us. Without holiness... One will never see the Lord. So it is the one Spirit who provides the common assurance this morning that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and the Spirit is within you, if you're a follower, he is within you as he is within me, that together we will share in the kingdom of God. It's beyond that. This, this, the Spirit, the one Spirit and in his indwelling ministry is an assurance that, that God will ultimately bring the rebellious world under the sun, under the, the uh, headship of his own son. You see it in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, where it says, uh, He, the Father, has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, that is, Christ, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. The giving of the Spirit... It's the common assurance that this rebellious world will be brought to heal, That it will be summed up in Christ. It is the, it is the work of the Spirit, this one Spirit, that, that gives us our assurance that Jesus wins in the end. And that we will share in the, the spoils of his victory. His victory over sin and death and Satan and the world. Remember, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, this is who we once were, right? We formally walked according to the course of the world, under the power of the prince of the air, and and, uh, given over to our own lustful hearts, and so forth. So now, because of the work of the Spirit, we have assurance that you and I, wretched as we once were, defiled as we remain, will yet still share in the victories of Christ. Okay, So this is the assurance provided by the one Spirit. We are one body this morning, sharing the same Spirit, assured of the same eternal destiny. And that is very, very significant. In fact, it was so important to the apostles that this was understood, that they did everything in their power to extinguish any kinds of divisions or rivalries that crept up into the church in its early days. Anything that would disturb or destroy the fellowship of the church, the apostles were all over and wanted to make sure they snuffed it out. Because if they left it unaddressed, it could lead to rival communities of believers, rival groups who claim to be following Christ. And indeed, if there are rival groups that claim to be following Christ, they're not following Christ. There's something wrong. Something wrong. I'm not going to take the time to develop it all this morning. I've I've worked through some of it with you before when we talked about the the ministry of the Spirit. But just to recall your mind, think about the book of Acts this morning. It wasn't long after Pentecost in chapter 2, that there was a problem that arose between the the uh, daily distribution of the of the social welfare of the church among the widows. You remember it in Acts six. There were the Hellenistic Jews, uh, the widows of the Hellenistic Jews, those those Greek-speaking Jews that were from from the diaspora who had returned to Jerusalem, had returned to Palestine. Uh, normally a wife would come with her husband because he wanted to live out his days in or near the holy city. He would die, leave her a widow, and leave her destitute often. And so she became a ward of the church. These are the Hellenistic widows. There was also what's, what uh, Luke calls there the the Hebrew widows. Those would have been the, the widows whose Uh, who grew up in Palestine. And so you have Palestinian Jews, and you have Greek-speaking, enculturated Jews, and they're together, and the church, you know, the first church there in Jerusalem is providing for these widows who have no ability to provide for themselves, and yet there's a problem that grows, right? That kind of a problem, my friends, could have destroyed the church in its infancy. And so they call the church together, right? And they propose these men who are filled with the Spirit who can take over the the care of the widows while the apostles said, we will give ourselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer. Okay, so very, very important that that was nipped in the bud so that there didn't become two Jewish churches, two Jewish churches. You see it in the whole tongue-speaking phenomena of the book of Acts. And this is what I did go over. Uh, it's been a couple of months ago, so I'm not going to build the case again. But in each situation, when a new people group is brought into the one church, it is evidenced by the indwelling spirit who gives physical manifestation through the speaking in tongues. That's tongue speaking in the book of Acts. It's simple once you understand it and follow it through. It's simply this, the apostles spoke in tongues as evidence of the indwelling spirit in Acts two four. The Samaritans spoke in tongues as evidence of the indwelling spirit upon their conversion in Acts chapter 8, verse 17. That's implied, by the way, by verse 18. The Gentiles in Cornelius, uh, represented in Cornelius, when they the, uh, become part of the one body of Christ, that's evidenced in speaking his tongues as well. And then there are the disciples of John the Baptist in Acts 19 who when they now believe and are baptized and Paul lays his hands on them, they too evidence the indwelling spirit through the speaking in tongues. That's tongue speaking. By the way, that's all the incidences of tongue speaking in the book of Acts. It is a symbol of the greater reality of the one spirit, one body. You think about Paul's writings. How often does he talk about Jew-Gentile relations, right? Right? I mean, if you think about the New Testament letters and you begin to unpack them, you will see that the, that the Jew-Gentile divide that is obliterated in Christ is a frequent topic in Paul's letters to the churches. That's because it is the outworking of the new covenant to be made the one new man. And so Jew and Gentile in the same fellowship must get along. They must get along. And if, and if Jew and Gentile can get along, then you and I can get along. There is nothing that divides us that comes anywhere near the historical uh, divisions and the depths of the animosity that existed between Jew and Gentile in the first century. We see it as well, and again, I'm not going to take you there. If you get my notes, you can trace these things on your own, but, but the whole issue of divisiveness, and in particular, uh, when Paul addresses the Corinthian assembly. The church at Corinth is racked with all kinds of problems, probably the biggest one of which is their divisiveness, their separations from one another. And Paul, in the strongest possible terms, chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 11, he addresses this issue. He comes back to it repeatedly to address it and to say these things cannot be, they must not be. We share the same spirit. And thus we share the same destiny. And that is a, is a reality that, that we must be diligent to preserve, right? Verse 3, chapter 4. Be diligent to preserve the outward manifestation of this one incredible reality. You and I share the same spirit, and thus we share the same destiny. Paul moves on now in... Verse 5 to the work of the Son. There he says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We could say we share the same Lord and thus the same allegiance to the gospel. We share the same Lord and thus we share the same allegiance to the gospel. As Christians, we have one Lord, Paul says. One Lord, this Lord who has been raised from the dead, chapter 1, verse 20, and sits at the Father's right hand, right? Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth, right? This is the one Lord who sits at the right hand of the Father. He has been given rule over the creation, verses 21 and 22, chapter 1. Right. He sits at the father's right hand far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he has put all things in subjection under his feet and he gave him to be head over all things to his church. So this one Lord sitting at the father's right hand has been given rule over the entire creation and his glory, the glory of the son is the focus, the sole focus of the father chapter Three, verse eleven it is the It is the purpose of the Father's dealing with this universe to bring about the glory of the Son verse eleven chapter three. This is in accordance with the eternal purpose which the Father carried out in Christ. Jesus our Lord. It is the Father's eternal purpose that Jesus be recognized as Lord of all, right? Paul's argument in Philippians chapter 2. He humbled himself that he might be exalted and that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay? The Lordship of Jesus Christ Now, simply put, uh, the lordship of Jesus Christ precludes anyone or anything else from making a legitimate claim to lordship. If there is one Lord and Christ is Lord, then nothing else and no one else can be Lord. In other words, if Jesus is Lord, then Artemis of the Ephesians is not Lord. Now think with me, go I'll take you there. We'll go to Acts chapter 19, right? The planting there, the church in Ephesus, or Paul's ministry there in the church of Ephesus. Chapter 19 verses 27, 28. You know, Paul everywhere he went, everywhere he went, rather, he causes a riot, and, and Ephesus is, is no exception to that. So this uh, silversmith, Demetrius, verse 24. He's, uh, he's all riled up. He gets all the craftsmen uh, all riled up. And he says, this Paul and his preaching of the Lordship of Christ is bad for business. It's, it's destroying the idol business, right? We used to make these idols and sell them because we were uh, the, the center of Diana or Artemis of the Ephesians, who was supposedly the Lord uh, um, goddess who had descended as a meteorite. I mean, you can get into all of that, okay? But, but notice in verse 27 where what his, what his beef is, what Demetrius's beef really is. He says, Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into distribute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will be dethroned from her magnificence. When they heard this, they were filled with rage and began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And Paul is saying, "Eh, eh, 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 eh." Jesus is Lord. That makes Artemis of the Ephesians a worthless, senseless, stupid idol. If Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not. If Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. And beloved, the knowledge of that reality put the early church on a collision course with its own society. There is no room for two claims of lordship. No room at all. When when the message of the one Lord, whose name is Jesus, was forcefully and powerfully proclaimed throughout the world of the first century, it caused massive conflict. Massive conflict. And you know what? The same thing is true today. If you and I seriously passionately, powerfully proclaim and believe that Jesus is Lord, we are on a collision course with our own society. And conflict is what we should expect. Paul says, all who desire to live godly for Christ Jesus will suffer. You fill it in. What? Persecution. Persecution. The Lordship of Christ extends over every realm of his domain. It is not merely a statement about formal religion. It's not like, okay, fine, Jesus can be Lord in the Christian church, but every other realm and aspect of society is something different. Jesus is Lord. He is Lord over education, he is Lord over knowledge. He is Lord over law, medicine, politics, foreign policy, economics, science, health care, counseling, welfare, manufacturing, distribution, retailing, and employee relations, to name just a few. If Jesus is Lord, and we take seriously that statement, then there is not one corner of his creation over which he does not exert his lordship. And when we begin to think about that, and we begin to take that seriously, it changes everything. It changes everything. The implications of this are massive, massive, Why is the Lordship of Christ essential to church unity? Why is that? The answer is simply this because if Jesus is Lord, then everyone else is not. Then everyone else is not. Not government officials. Not experts and consultants. Not the elders or the deacons and not you, and not me. There is only one Lord of the church, and it's not you, and it's not me. There can be no unity in a local congregation when there is an authority source in that congregation greater than Christ. As he's been revealed in his word. That is a requirement. It's a bedrock principle of church unity. There can be no higher appeal. No other place to go. than Christ is revealed in his word. Not human tradition. Not that we've always done it that way approach. Not that this is what all the big and successful churches do approach. Not this is what the Puritans did approach. Not this is what John Calvin did approach. Or anybody else. It's Christ through his word. There can be no true unity with those who profess Christ but disregard the scriptures and substitute in their place human authority or worldly wisdom. One Lord. One Lord. One faith, Paul says, verse 5. One faith. Because we all share an allegiance to the one Lord, we thus have an allegiance to his gospel. To his gospel. Paul refers to it here. He calls it the one faith. All right? Verse 5. One Lord, one faith. Earlier, Paul refers to the gospel in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 13, as the message of truth. He calls it the message of truth there in verse 13. Here he calls it one faith. The one faith is, is a reference to the, to the body of doctrine that all true Christians believe. It is the, it is the faith into which we are all growing and maturing. And brought together in unity as a result of the ministry of the gifted men that God gives to his church. You see it there in verses 11 through 13 of the same chapter. right? Chapter 4, 11 to 13. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, for the building of the body of Christ. And there it is, verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the one faith. The one faith. By the way, Jude writes in Jude 3, the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. The faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. Now we can find Paul beginning to think and refer to the gospel as the faith or the one faith early in his writings. Galatians. It appears in Galatians, his earliest writings. But it's It it grows in its repetition in the later years of his ministry as he writes. More and more and more. And I think what this indicates is is that as the truths were revealed to him and the other apostles and and codified in in their various writings, the the faith had its, its boundaries drawn, as it were. The implications of the, of the basic truth of the gospel began to be fleshed out and became part of the one faith. Now, what does this mean? What are the implications of all of this? Well, one implication for sure is that there were no competing forms of Christianity in the first century. If you watch television programs about you know, the history of Christianity and those kind of things produced and, and broadcast on secular networks and so forth, they will continually bring on these liberal uh, scholars and doctors and so forth who will talk about competing forms of Christianity and that, it, you know, depending how they articulate it, that this sort of one form, a Pauline form, they will say, sort of arose and, and, and squashed out all the competing forms. That is nonsense. That is absolute nonsense. There were not competing faith groups that were legitimate in the first century. In fact, just the opposite. That with the passage of time, the one faith became assaulted by deviant teachers that gave rise to other uh, groups, drew disciples away after themselves. You see that in verse 14, by the way, chapter 4, here. Just take a look. Right, Paul says, as a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, crafted in deceitful scheming. In other words, the church was being attacked by false teachers. Israel in the first century was continually assaulted by false prophets. The church of Jesus Christ has been continually assaulted by false teachers. And what Paul is saying here is that the one faith is the boundary markers that all outside of that lies death and destruction. There were no legitimate competitors. By the way, just thinking about the passage of time and and the assaults on the church and so forth, Paul writes to Timothy. These are these are late in his. In his uh, ministry, his career, he writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Timothy is pastoring the church at Ephesus. And Paul writes to Timothy, there, the pastor of the church, and he refers to the one faith, but there he calls it a deposit that has to be guarded. He says to him in uh, in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, I'll pick it up there, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. He says, oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Guard what has been entrusted to you. In other words, the faith, the one faith has been passed on to you, Timothy. And while you are there in Ephesus with these deviant teachers constantly nipping at your heels and seeking to divide and draw off disciples unto themselves, you guard, you hang on to, you protect this this deposit, this one faith, against what Paul says over in, in chapter 4 there of 1 Timothy, and beginning in verse 1 and following, is a, is a growing apostasy. This growing apostasy. Protect the one faith, Timothy. Guard the deposit that has been given to you. And beloved, what does it all mean? What are the implications of this? Well, the implications, I think, of the one faith are, are simply this. Without the gospel, there can be no unity. There can be no real and true unity. Because without the gospel, there can be no true church. It is not the church that created the gospel. It is the gospel that created the church. So the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and his lordship over all, Forms the church, undergirds the church, is an is a entrustment to the church. And is a boundary for Christian fellowship. All throughout our community and our country this past weekend, there were ecumenical services. People think it's a really good idea for churches. So, you know, let's just get together and, you know, we'll put all of that stuff aside. Let's just get together. And let's just talk about what we're thankful for. Maybe you want to get together with your neighbors and talk about what you're thankful for. uh, Power to you. Go for it. But the church of Jesus Christ does not draw down her flag. Does not declare truce. Does not ignore the life and death differences that exist between those of other religious persuasions who are lost in darkness and desperately need to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ for the sake of some sort of temporal, civil ceremony. It is the gospel that creates the boundaries around the church. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. You'll have to come back next week for that. i got a lot I want to say about baptism, and it's just not enough time. So next week, we will circle back See, that's the beauty of the Q&A format, by the way. I can come right back to this verse. All I have to do is think up a question. What does baptism have to do with unity? Here's my question. We will come back next week, and I will show you. Because it is deeply on my heart that I think that the modern church has lost the real significance of water baptism. So we're going to come back to it. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. What role does theology play in church unity? We share the same spirit and thus the same destiny. Secondly, we share the same Lord and and thus the same allegiance to the gospel. Third, we share the same sovereign father and thus the same family identity. We share the same sovereign father and thus the same family identity. One God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Paul completes his, his theological basis for Christian unity by focusing on the Father and identifying the work of the Father really quickly in just in three ways here. He speaks about the Father as sovereign over all believers. He is the God and Father of all. He's speaking about believers here. He is sovereign over us. He is our God and Father. And if we take seriously his sovereignty over us, then contentment and, and joy of a loving Father and his wise uh, and, and gracious care of us becomes a basis of our unity together. We know that God is working all things together for good, right? To those who are the called according to uh, those who love God and are called according to his purpose. All things together. That includes the person next to you in the local church. The person across the aisle who bothers you, whose personality, you know, and yours just, uh, they, they don't, you know what I'm saying, right? Their sin falls under the sovereignty of God the Father. Who is working it together for good. He is teaching you something. If you will but learn it. If I will but learn it. He is sovereign over all of us. We're part of a family. Listen. You don't get to choose your family. Right? You can choose your friends. You can't choose your family. We are family. All of us. Beyond that, he is actively working through all believers. God and Father of all who is over all, that's his sovereignty, and through all. He is actively working through all believers. Chapter 2, verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. In other words, as we live together, as we, as we minister to each other and beyond to the world at large, we become the visible hands and feet of God. How is God working through all things? Well, he's working through all things in one way through you and I. In fact, you are frequently the answer to someone's prayer. And they are the answer to yours. You ever think about that? In fact, if you think about last Sunday's Thanksgiving service, that was on display all over the place. I mean, we pray, oh, Lord, you know, you do this, will you do that, and so forth. Listen, he's not going to rent the heavens and and come down, you know, send an angel, whatever. He's going to accomplish these things providentially through the outworking of his people. He's actively working through you and through me. Because we're part of the family together. And third, he's he's personally intimate with all of us, right? He's in all. God the Father is... is, This is such an amazing statement, right? The Spirit within, the Son within, the Father within. He is in all. And he is in all in such a way that we we call him Abba, Father. That is a a closest... Our family, the father of our family, who is... Sovereign over the universe, we get to call Dad. We get to call Dad. He cares about the concerns of your heart. And beloved, despite the differences, the deep, deep differences of ethnicity and culture, there's something far stronger that binds us together in Christian unity. We share the same family. We are adopted children into the same family of God. We have the same father. And all of this, verses 4, 5, and 6, is is rooted in the work of the triune Godhead. And thus, unity is as indivisible as God himself. For a church to, to split and divide is to deface the doctrine of the Trinity. It is to present to the world a, a mischaracterization, mischaracter a bad picture <laughs> of who God is, of who God is, and a focus, a focus on the Trinity, the triune God powerfully brings unity to a local church. Let me sketch that out for you in just the time we have left. Question. I am going to get to the second question this morning, all you naysayers. Question. What does the Trinity teach us about unity? What does the Trinity teach us about unity? Unity. I mean, as we were, we're working through here, right? One spirit, uh, verse 5, one Lord, verse 6, one God and Father, the triune Godhead. As we begin to consider God himself, it is very instructive, very, very instructive regarding unity in the body of Christ. We need to, Think and reason biblically. And, and we have perfect precedent for this, by the way, in chapter 5 of this same letter. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 22, right? 522 to 33 is all about what? Husbands and wives? Not really. It's about Christ in his church. Husbands and wives are, are the enacted illustration of the deeper and more profound reality of Christ in the church. It is Christ and the church that gives shape to a marriage. It, 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 the marriage is, is God's illustration for all ages of the greater, deeper, more profound reality of Christ and the church. And that is Paul's argument in chapter 5, 22 and following. So along that same line, reasoning in that kind of fashion, let me offer a couple of ideas for you to consider. And you can work them through in your mind, tease them out, think deeply about them, use them in your small groups. But here's a couple for you. You're thinking about the Trinity and unity. What does the Trinity teach us about unity? Now, what does unity teach us about the Trinity. What does the Trinity teach us about unity? We go from, from, the, from the reality to the illustration. Here's one idea for you. The unity and diversity within the Godhead models unity and diversity within the church. Unity and diversity within the Godhead models unity and diversity within the church. In other words, Father, Son, and Spirit are one God, that's unity, but they are diverse in, are diverse in their functions. They're diverse in their functions, right? The Father elects unto salvation. The Son earns salvation. The Spirit applies salvation. In the church, we are all one, right? The the local representation of the body of Christ. Yet at the same time, we are diverse in our giftedness and our functions within the body. Look at verse 7, right? One God, uh, you know, one spirit, one body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Verse 7, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then he'll go on to talk about that. So there is unity and there is diversity in function. Unity is not sameness. We talked about this a while ago, but, but why is unity not sameness? The reason unity is not sameness is because God is a trinity. This, as you begin to think about it, creates the, the, the theological reason for and, and, and um, power to the diversity that can exist within various churches. Both members, right? We've all been placed into the body and gifted in different ways. And so there's great diversity within the body, but there's this one unity. But there's also church from church. There are differences. Why aren't all the churches, why don't they all look the same? You go all over the the world, and throughout the periods of time, and the true church of Jesus Christ is not a cookie cutter. There's tremendous diversity. In other words, there's a a richness, there's a variedness to the churches. It's like a tapestry, it's beautiful. Compare that to Islam. Allah is one. He's a solitary, singular God. He's not triune. There's no relationship. There's, There's no diversity like there is within the Godhead of the true God. So you think about the expression of the worship of Allah And what you find is that it flattens, that it levels, that it eliminates distinctions. Culture becomes the same. Worship becomes the same. Clothing becomes the same. Diet becomes the same. There's there's no diversity allowed. In fact, just the opposite. Anyone who expresses diversity is squashed and brought back into the singularity. Why? It's because their conception of God is that he is a singularity. Falsely so. So it is the triunity of God, the unity in the Godhead expressed in the diversity of of his function and roles, Father, Son, and Spirit, that brings about diversity within the church. You think more on that. Give me another one. The unity of the Godhead and their equality as God is not diminished by their hierarchy in the work of salvation. The unity of the Godhead, their equality as God, is not diminished by their hierarchy within the work of salvation. Theologians like to talk about this as the ontological trinity and the economic trinity. Economics means work, basically, right? So ontologically, in terms of their being, it is, he is one God, right? eternally expressing himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. But as he works, as he, and, and the, the, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and they're all equally God. But in their work, there's, there's a hierarchy. Let me just get to you real quick. Just think about this. The Father is the head of Christ. That's Paul's argument, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 11, in verse 3, when he's talking about headship. Of the within the home, right, of husbands and wives. Okay, husband and wives, headship, is founded in what? The headship of father and son. So the father is the head of Christ, Paul says. John 6, 29, Jesus himself says, the father sent me into the world. That implies hierarchy. The son is always in perfect submission, does the will of the Father. John 12, 49, Jesus' own high priestly prayer. John 17, 4, right? I've accomplished all that you sent me to do. I haven't failed anywhere. I've lived in constant submission to your will, doing the task you sent me to do. The Father and the Son send the Spirit, and they send him into the world to testify to the work of the Son. John 14, 26. 15:26 the father sends the spirit john 14:26 the son sends the spirit 15:26 there's a hierarchy in the outworking the economy of the godhead this is instructive i think to the relationship and roles within a local church among members and elders leaders put it that way between the members and the leaders there is not a clerical class we're not sacerdotal. You know, I don't wear priestly vestments. You know, wear my shirt backwards and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, this is not an altar. Right? Laity, clergy. Those are wrong concepts. I sit down front. I, the only reason I sit in the front is because there's a quicker walk to the pulpit. Seriously. Why do I sit down front? Why don't I sit up here? I don't sit up here because I'm no different than anybody else. I am here to worship in the company of the believers, you. I I have a role to play in the service based on the call and giftedness of God. So when I step into the pulpit, it's to preach the word of God. When I'm done, I close the Bible and I go and I sit down and I'm done. By the way, that's why, and I know it's hard for some of you, and that's okay, I'm not bagging on you, but but that's why, like, I'm David. Not high and holy, you know, most right reverend, (laughs) which, by the way, is an actual title, most right reverend. You know, you can be reverend, most right reverend. It's David. Elders and deacons are equal. To everybody else. Everybody else. They have, in terms of their standing before God, we, you know, the elders, we're, we're just like everybody else. But there is, a, there is an economic difference, if you can think of it that way. We're, we're called and been vested with certain responsibilities and authorities to give leadership among the people of God. But we are the people of God. Right, he thirteen and verse seventeen. It says, you know, to um, uh, be in submission to your elders, right, so forth. So there, there is a there is a recognized authority for sure. And there's a if you you know if you want to say it this way, there is a hierarchy, but it's not an ontological hierarchy. Within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, all God. In the work of salvation, they have different roles. It's instructive for the church. I think we are all one. We are uni. We're in a unity together. But there are certain roles that are played within it that represent authorities and submissions, so forth. Think on these things. Think on these things. It may cause you to, to um, consider the church in a way you've never thought of it before. And that would be most likely a good thing. Let's pray. Our Father, the Church of Jesus Christ, a divine creation, bought with His precious blood, brought into existence as Your Spirit causes us to be regenerated, to be, to be born again. And through his indwelling presence to be united together. Here at Foothill is a, is a local tangible representation of the deeper and greater theological truth of the body of Christ. Our Father, that's why we have membership. We're seeking, in, even in our imperfect ways, to, to illustrate the great truth. Father, there's so much more we need to know. There's so much more we need to understand. There's so much more we need to practice. There's so many themes this morning we've talked about that there's more than enough for us to chew on, to be sure. Oh, Father, by your Spirit and through your Word, may you apply the truth exactly where it needs to be in each one of our hearts. Let us leave this place changed, ever closer to the image of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.